it's amazing. It's amazing how you can start off doing one thing. For instance, being a teacher in a school and end up in such a vastly different place only 10, 15 years later. Our guest today started off being a teacher, became a serial entrepreneur, and today she is a voiceover artist, among other things. It's astounding how serendipity brings us into places that we never imagined possible before we actually took all the steps to get there. And so we discuss, we, we kind of like nail down and figure out, hey, what's this all about? How do we get from one place to another to another? And how can we be more focused and more open to serendipity helping us in life and taking us to the places where we really truly need to go to make that difference in the world around us? This is the Way to Greatness podcast, where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness. And now your host, Ari Gunsberg. Welcome back to The Way to Greatness. Today we have with us Lisa Capri. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right, Lisa, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I am a podcaster like yourself, so it's awesome to be on a fellow podcaster's show. I host Raise Your Frequency podcast, which, like your show, is primarily targeted at entrepreneurs, although probably a little bit more segmented. Um, my content generally is aimed at female entrepreneurs aged 28 to about 55, and we kind of tackle the ins and outs of entrepreneurship and the trials and tribulations. And attached to that, I also actually teach podcasting. So I have a whole slew of online trainings and live workshops that I do, and that keeps me really busy. So for those entrepreneurs looking to grow their brand, their audience, and their influence, I teach that through podcasting. And once again, attached to that, I also do a lot of professional voiceover work. So you might have heard me on a commercial or on a radio ad or some YouTube video that you may have come across. That voice just might have been mine. Wow. <laughs> Can you give me an example of a voiceover commercial or radio show or something that I would have heard you on? Well, that would be tough to say because a lot of times it's private companies, so I don't necessarily have access to the finished product. Although what I can say, if I'm going to do a little bit of name dropping, is that a lot of the clients are overseas. And so what happens is you might have companies like Samsung, sure. the cell phone company, that has branches all over the world. And so they create original content often in their country of origin. And what sometimes happens is they want to be able to use that same video or that same ad, but have sort of a generic North American voice to go along with that. So sometimes I'll be the voiceover dub for the standard 30-something, early 40s <laughs> generic voice. <laughs> so, you know, companies like that. That's something to put in your LinkedIn profile? Yeah, seriously. I am a generic voice. 
<laughs> Seriously, North American mom, right? You know, kind of that that teachery voice too, because I do a lot of corporate e-learning uh, voiceover. So if ever you've taken an online course, it's very much like that. There's often a voice that has to go along with the video to sort of describe what's happening on the screen. And as somebody who actually does have a background in teaching, I kind of fit right into that corporate e-learning training online voiceover. So I do a lot of that as well. So they're often private internal training. So you wouldn't necessarily hear them just in, in outside public world. Right on. I've got so much stuff I want to talk about that you just brought up. First, you started off teaching. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So way back when, this is going to date me, but well before the world of social media and digital online marketing, I um, wanted to study in journalism and communications, which I did. So here in Canada, we go to university. You guys call it college up there where you are. <laughs> so yep. I went to college and I studied several years to get my bachelor's degree in journalism and communications and radio broadcasting, which at the time was all you really had. So it was print media. The Internet didn't exist um, or it was like fledgling. So I studied in that. And at the same time, as I was getting ready to graduate, I had this calling that I knew that I wanted to teach and I had done some volunteer work with high risk for dropout teens. And I just fell in love with that target market or that clientele, if you wish. So I then realized shortly before graduating that I really wanted to teach and I wanted to work with teens that had just a variety of social problems that would make for, you know, a high risk for dropout scenario. So sure. I immediately got into teaching after that. But I'm someone who's a bit of a stickler for looking good on paper, too, as much as you present yourself well in real life. So I then went back to university and studied in education to get my teacher's degree and license so that I could continue to teach. And I spent well over 15 years in the field of education, both as a public school teacher and then simultaneously as an entrepreneur in the education world. I owned an educational company for about 10 years. To then come full circle in the last few years, stepping out of education and now working back in media with podcasting and online entrepreneurship, now that it exists, <laughs> we have all these tools available, <laughs> I've really come full circle. So that's kind of the short story of that. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. How did you jump from teaching into voiceover slash podcasting work? Well, it's actually a lot simpler than it might seem. So after spending so long, you know, a total of 15 years in education, it's a field that I love. It's still near and dear to my heart. But at the time, I had to make a decision. My own son was going to be entering the school system, you know, in kindergarten. And I kind of had this mom guilt <laughs> because I was working a lot, for lack of a better expression, you know, very corporate sort of environment. And because I own the business, you always put in a lot, especially when you're in that first decade a lot. Of or five to ten years, you know, so you're you're doing a lot. Heartens all their, all their yeah. heart and soul often every waking moment. Yeah. And it's really hard to get that home life balance and all of that. It's it's really tough to achieve. Yeah. And because the business that I had grown over that near decade had expanded quite quickly, the management of that, we're talking over 50 employees and a lot of management and branching out into other areas of education. So it was a full service learning center with internal and external teams and teams on the road. And it was just very complex. And so at that time, I really felt that I was in a fork in the road, if you will. And I thought, well, I don't want to be the mom that's never home. I need to be there for my son. How can I make this work? How can I take the things that I love to do and the things that I'm good at, like teaching, like working in journalism and broadcasting, how can I do that, support my family or at least, you know, contribute to my family's income while still being there for my son? So 
After a lot of inner reflection, I decided to sell that business and find a way to make it work working from home so that I could drive my son to school, I can pick him up, I can be there for homework and after school snacks and all of that. So it was actually sort of this traditional mom guilt, but also feeling good about it being time for me to make a change and kind of go back to my first love. And I think that it's okay as an entrepreneur to have seasons in which you're really passionate about a certain field and you build it up and then you just find a way to transfer those skills and what you've learned to perhaps something new or a new project. And so voiceover was something I was always interested in, but didn't give myself permission to do because I was already doing so much. And the podcast was, again, one of those things that was in my heart for a long time before it was born. So now that I was home, I thought, right, (laughs) time to get started. Let's start building a voiceover business. That happened pretty quickly, which was fascinating. You know, you have to do the original things like start getting your name out there and you have to get your demos cut and start promoting yourself, which I did all myself because I'm not a shy person and I'm willing to reach out to people. I didn't have a manager. I just started doing it myself. Um, And from there, very quickly, I realized, well, I have all this equipment. I'm doing all this time to do that podcast that I've always wanted to do. That started going really well. Podcast got off the ground. Great success there. Loved it. Was back to doing what I used to love to do in radio. Just now it was my own show. (laughs) So a lot more control. I didn't have to worry about sponsors and, you know. Right. A lot more control. Do you use advertisers? Um, indirectly. Currently, my show is commercial and sponsor free. That may change, but I am monetizing the podcast just in indirect ways. So you won't hear any commercials. Yes. There are ways to monetize a podcast. Absolutely. My podcast, as long as it helps me further my goals of, you know, helping people and inspiring them to greatness and whatnot, it is exactly potentially monetized. I don't have to worry about advertising. I was just curious if you used specifically advertising, but it sounds like you monetize it by using it to launch your services and where you fit into other people's structures. Is that right? Absolutely. And I also do an experiment and dabble in affiliate marketing from time to time when it's appropriate. And as long as it's sort of genuine and authentic to my audience, I will do that. But it's not a direct sponsorships. No. Cool. That's very cool. So you mentioned before you brought up that you've been through different seasons in your life. And I know that when we were talking before the show, we were talking about how I call it the journey between success and failure. And you know, you were talking about it more in the sense of seasons and stuff. So could, do you want to take us through some of these seasons of your life in some examples of failures that you've experienced and then successes that have come from there? Oh, yeah. And I've got plenty of examples for you. How long do we have? (laughs) No, just kidding. Uh, Five days. (laughs) Oh, good, good, good. Let's go. Clear your schedule. Let's do it. (laughs) All right, everybody. You know, (laughs) that's it. That's it. That's it. We're we're ready to go. Grab your pajamas and uh, your favorite beverage and let's hit it. Well, let's just drive to California. Make it work like that, right? 72 hours or so. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Oh, awesome. I love California, by the way. So here's where this stems from. And my whole idea of failing and succeeding actually being seasons in your business and life, this comes from, I think, self-identifying as a multi-passionate entrepreneur. 
politely called a serial entrepreneur, but let's be real, it's shiny object syndrome masked as a multi-passionate entrepreneur. So it really just means that... I kept on bringing up serial entrepreneurship and I was wondering if you had a different way of looking at that. But yes, shiny object syndrome. Oh no. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It's it's a real struggle, but I think it, it has its advantages. So because I am a creative, a creative person, um, I constantly love to learn, but when I learn something, I want to test it out. I want to implement. I do believe in multi-revenue streams. If you are able to handle that and you can get enough focus and reel yourself in, I think it's a great way to operate if you are a multi-passionate entrepreneur. If you're somebody who has multiple interests in, in different areas, I think multi-revenue is great. And although I think being hyper-focused on just one thing can certainly lead to amazing results, I don't think it's for everyone. And I don't think that's how everyone's brain and soul were designed to work. So that's why I think that failing and succeeding are actually seasons both in your business and in your personal life. And I really believe that they're always in motion. It's kind of like the ebb and flow of the ocean. Or that old adage, you know, two steps back, one step forward. Two steps forward, one step back. And I think it, it's okay. Unless you're traveling in the other direction. Correct. Thank <laughs> you for that. Good catch. <laughs> Good catch. I mean, listen, there are times when sometimes we want to back away. And so two steps back and one step forward will be very, very apropos. Like, for instance, if a grizzly bear is walking towards you. Yeah. Very good. I want to be going that way. (laughs) And that grizzly bear can take many forms, right? Lack of cash flow. It can be um, stress on your, you know, on your family life. If you're too much in one court. Touche. I love how you just took that, what a real life example and turned it into a metaphor for so many things. Keep on going. I love it. Grizzly bear. This is what we live as entrepreneurs, right? So to get back to your original question, some examples of times where I had, you know, we'll put in air quotes, failures, perfect examples like that business that I mentioned, that educational business that I was involved in for over 10 years. I started that while I was simultaneously still teaching in the public school system. So I was still a full-time teacher by day and then trying to build this business in the evenings. And for one reason or another, um, at that time, my gut instinct was not to do this as a family-owned and operated business. And by family, I mean going into business with in-laws and like extended family. Not my immediate family, but, you know, extended family. For one reason or another, I had this, <laughs> I had this yep. notion that that was sort of bad for family and bad for family drama and things like that. I went against my gut instinct. It often is, but not always. Mm-hmm. Not always. Definitely not always. And I had no proof of why this would necessarily be bad. So I just talked myself into it, ignored my gut instinct. And so ultimately, the story there is it was very challenging for the reasons that I believed it would be. But the success that came out of that was that there were instances of success. I was able to push through some of those and and realize my real true grit as an entrepreneur. And despite the internal turmoil that sometimes takes place between family and building a business and the stress and trials and tribulations of that, we still managed to expand, build something I was really proud of, and then was able to sell something at a point in my life where it didn't serve me anymore that actually had value in the market. So it was a failure in not listening to my gut instinct. And it was 10 years of my life that I could have used differently. But ultimately, I learned so much in those 10 years that it's still serving me today. Lessons about delegation and hiring people and retaining good employees. If I hadn't have made that decision against my gut instinct, I wouldn't have had those lessons at that age. It would have taken me maybe a lot longer to learn those lessons. So that's 
one example. Shall I continue? <laughs> okay. Yes, please. So completely unrelated to education. Way back again, sort of like pre-digital age in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the internet was very much still in dinosaur dial-up. I'm sure you remember. I do. Uh, <laughs> a lot of, you know, online merchants were starting to see the potential in it, but the infrastructure was not there. And unless you were really good at coding, building a website in those days was disastrous. So I had a creative hobby, which was making handmade jewelry. And although I would do a lot of sort of old school trade shows and craft fairs, and I would break in quite a bit of dough doing that, I wanted to move into online entrepreneurship way back when. So an opportunity arose where a brand new platform opened up that was specifically for people who worked in the arts. So whether that be painters or what have you, to sell their, their goods online. So the first sort of online shops that popped up in the late 90s. So I went all in. Now, you, of course, you had to pay monthly for this. But the big mistake I made, which is the example of failure, is that I didn't set myself up for the what ifs. You know, I was young. I also didn't have any coding experience. So I said, well, this is great. They're doing all the coding for me. It was sort of like the very early days of drag and drop, except you had to use their infrastructure. So all the stores looked the same, right? Because it was just one template and you had to kind of fit your stuff in there, right? Oh, I remember those. They were kind of disastrous. It was. It was. But I mean, they were that that particular platform went under within about a year and a half of me opening the store. So unfortunately, I had built a client base. I had all of these products up online, but I didn't prepare myself for the eventuality of what if this platform does go under? What if, you know, I don't have the infrastructure after? Did they host it so you lost everything? Everything. It was like a self-hosted thing. No, no. You lose everything. Oh, because I'm thinking of like X-Card yeah. and stuff where like you would be hosting it yourself so you wouldn't get any more updates, but you would have the time to move off the platform. But you're saying they just belly up. Goodbye. Your store's done. Yeah. So they went belly up. We did get a 30-day notice saying, you know, we're letting you know that we are completely going under in 30 days. You have 30 days to get all your stuff off and oh maybe God. host somewhere else. So at that time, I said, wow, I was already doing a lot of things. And so this was more of a creative hobby and outlet. And although I was making sales, don't get me wrong, it was just, is this worth it for me to now either have to hire somebody, which at that age, I was in, I don't know, like very early 20s. I don't have the budget to hire somebody because things were a lot more expensive back then. So again, remember, there's no such thing as dragon drop at this point and build it yourself websites you had to hire somebody and oh yeah and websites at that time <laughs> no such thing as a programmer to find a programmer well that's it and who knew if he knew what he was doing or not i'm saying like i remember you bring people on and they, they're like yeah 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 php i got it and they start doing it. you're like you have no idea what you're doing <laughs> and they're learning it as right. they're doing it and then you get a bill for like 800 hours <laughs> minimum that was like a plain website yeah i mean websites would cost like 10 grand back then right and then you had to worry about third-party plugins and payment was not easy at all online at that point it was more like just tell me that you're gonna buy it mail me a check and, and i'll mail it out to you eventually that was like i mean it was it was pretty bad Exactly. And like third party plugins. And then PayPal was just coming around at that time. So imagine the plugins. It was one of those one of those scenarios where I thought, okay, I didn't use foresight. Um, and who would have known, you know, that this could happen. So not being prepared for the what ifs and not having a backup plan was the failure. Um, and so I ended up just having to close up shop completely because I just didn't have the time or the resources back then to invest in starting over. Um, and at the time, there was also no email marketing. So I couldn't retain any of the clients' information. <laughs> so. 
Right. Based on that experience, do you feel like you should have had an eventuality for literally anything? Meaning I'm saying like, you know, if you go out and you open up a store on Shopify right now, do you feel like you should have a, a plan just in case Shopify goes under? I mean, Shopify might be a bad example because they're so huge. But I don't know. Let's say you yeah. use um, one in one store. You know, do you need to have a plan if that happens? I mean, saying like I think you do. But the severity of having a platform go under is so much different than it was 20 something odd years ago. Because you can literally just save everything. Yeah. There's tools to move back and forth now. Right. There's export tools. Save everything to the cloud and then just drag and drop it into something else. I mean, the same holds true for building online courses. You know, you can migrate from one to another. Right. But I'm, I'm just like wondering, like, I always have this thought in my head, like, what's too much? You know, like, I mean, yeah, great. It would be great to have a plan for every single eventuality. It's like, well... Aliens just landed at the top of our street. Oh, that's plan C-39. So let's just go pull that out of the folder and like do it. <laughs> you know, like what's too much and everything. So that's why yeah. I'm just trying to get an idea. You know, I mean, I, I understand that in the early infancy of the Internet to have a plan just in case the website went belly up. I'm saying that stuff was happening all the time in the early 2000s. You know, the, the dot com bust and everything of 2001 or whatever it was. So this was all happening at the time. Yep. I've always had this fascination of. What's too much preparation, right? At what point are you overdoing being prepared for every eventuality? So I was just trying to understand, like, you know, some of your thoughts on that. Here's what I'd say to that. If it impedes your everyday working and it impedes you from doing what you do best, then it's too much. And if you still feel the need to dot all the I's and cross all the T's, then you need help. You need a virtual assistant or you need someone that you can keep on a retainer that will do these things for you so that it's out of sight, out of mind. Yes. I mean, delegation is always yeah. good and it's always going to help you be able to achieve more. But that doesn't mean that the virtual assistant, you know, you know hire somebody to be like, just think of all my problems for me. Well, the truth is, did you hear that joke? Um, <laughs> there are people that do that. Do you know that? They look under the hood of your business and tell you where you have weaknesses. That's absolutely true. There are people who do that. Yeah, 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 100%. But there was a joke or something, uh, like a small startup or whatever, put out an ad. They're like, you know, we're looking for an accountant. So a guy comes in, interviews for the job. The guy talks to him. He finds it. He's like, I like you a lot. You've got the job. Your starting salary is $80,000. You want the job? The guy's like, yeah, it's great. Then he looks around. He's like, but how are you going to pay me $80,000? He's like, that's your first thing you got to figure out a solution for. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the planning and stuff. So do you have any examples of failures that, like just everything started crashing and burning all around you and like things were just going completely off the rails and and you had no idea what to do, where to turn, how to continue and everything. Any examples like that? Any like rock bottom examples? Oh, yeah. So I sold a business, as you know, from my previous story. And then I had to figure out how I was going to build revenue from home starting from nothing. Now, I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks here. Yes, I did start in voiceover, but you start really small. So that's not going to support. It's not going to pay your mortgage, (laughs) right? Especially not at the beginning. And I had been known for the longest time, let's say for the better part of 15 years, as an educational professional. So here I am trying to then get known as some sort of online entrepreneur and build a personal brand that had nothing to do with what I had been building as a brand for the last 15 years. So I'm starting from zero here. So contextualizing this, I started experimenting with different kinds of online businesses. So a lot of multi-level marketing things come into mind. Online sales. I was always interested in teaching and I didn't want to completely leave that 
part out of it. So I spent a lot of resources and some savings in building what I thought would be these amazing online courses for other entrepreneurs sort of at the you know beginning stages of having an idea for a business and how do you not get overwhelmed. And I did some things right, like asking my audience what they really wanted. And this is a fledgling audience, by the way, because as I just said, I'm trying to build an audience for something that I wasn't known for at all. So literally nobody at this time knew who I was. And I did all the things, surveys, pulled them, all of this stuff. And then I didn't listen to them. (laughs) And I ended up turning around and saying, that's cool. That's what you say you want. But I think I know better. And I think I know what you really need. And you need a course about this, this and this. So after all of that effort, I didn't listen to my audience. And I went ahead and spent months and months creating what I thought were these amazing online courses, spent a ton of money and a ton of time doing this. And then they completely flopped. And the real reason they flopped was because I wasn't listening to my audience. I wasn't giving them what they wanted. I wasn't positioning it in a way that sounded like what they said. Everything was entirely in my voice. And you know in marketing, that's the biggest no-no. You have to use the voice of your audience when you're marketing. And so I didn't listen to them. I did a lot of things wrong. Didn't have the right infrastructure or, you know, I didn't have the foresight once again to realize that this is going to flop if you're not giving the audience what they want. And so the crash and burn. I had just spent eight or nine months diving myself into this, going full force. But because I started with a rocky foundation, which is not listening to my audience, everything that I did after was off course. It's like when a plane is just three degrees off course. Well, it doesn't stay three degrees off course. It continues to multiply exponentially, and then you end up in another country. (laughs) And that's basically what happened to me. So then I find myself nine months in going, oh my God, what did I do? The courses weren't selling. I had spent money. And of course, you have to host these on, you know, platforms, online platforms. And it's usually a monthly fee. So all of this fees were accruing and there were no sales. So I really had to do a lot of introspection and realize, okay, I know what I'm good at. The lesson here in this failure was listen to your audience. If they tell you that out of these five choices, they want choice number one and you go build choice number five because you like it better. Well, that's not a good business model. (laughs) And so that that's what happened. And that's an example of when I crashed and burned and didn't have anything to show for it after coming up for air after nine months. So how much money did you end up losing on that? Several thousand, I would say, between all of the things. And that might not seem like a lot of money to a lot of people, but when you just stop working, quote unquote, from a quote unquote real job and you have a mortgage to pay and you have a young child at home and you're trying to be a good mom, but you're spending all this time doing all these things, you can't always quantify what was lost just in a monetary form. Yeah, no, 100%. It's not just it's the lost time and stuff. What are some lessons you learned from that? So the foresight. And again, it's not to be overly prepared and think of every doomsday scenario, but you got to have some sense in looking forward and not just go day by day. At least think of things, especially when you're project planning, three to six months out. Where should you be? What are your markers for success? You know, come up with those drivers, if you will, those different categories or those milestones you want to hit that you feel support your definition of success. doesn't have to be the same for everyone. And then, of course, it's listen to your audience, talk to them. And then when you get that feedback and those answers, listen. Don't just go out and do what you think is better or, you know, build a course because you think it's fascinating and you would be interested in taking a course. You have to really be respectful of your audience's needs and meet them where they are. And that's what I failed to do in that example. 
Okay. And so what have you done differently when you're putting together this podcast, when you've been building up this voiceover business? What have you done differently when you're putting all this together that transformed that failure into success? So taking those lessons in late 2017, early 2018, um, as I was gearing up to launch the podcast, I knew that I wanted to take everything that I had learned, because I had to learn everything the hard way in terms of how to launch a successful podcast. I was piecing things together and I was getting information from different sources. And I realized that that source of frustration that I had, anytime I learned something like a true teacher, you want to share that. But like a true entrepreneur, you want to monetize that. (laughs) So I said, okay, I had this experience of struggling to figure out what are the logical sequential steps that you should take in conceiving of and then launching a successful podcast. I put all of this knowledge together and I said, I'm going to build a course on this. And then I stopped and I said, wait a minute, that's exactly what you did, you know, two years prior when you thought you had a great idea for an online course or two or three, and you just assumed there was a demand for it. So I stopped myself in my tracks and didn't build the course. And instead, I thought about what can I do to help me get up front, close and personal to my intended audience and find out if there's actually a need for this. So I started positioning myself as a speaker and I started getting speaking gigs to start talking to my ideal audience, which was female entrepreneurs, people who are already launching businesses, who already had businesses and find out would they be interested in learning how to use podcasting as a tool to grow their own brand and influence and audiences? So I positioned myself in such a way that I would show up at these women entrepreneur networks with a topic in mind about, you know, building yourself as an entrepreneur and particularly rebranding yourself because I could speak to that after having been in one career for so long and then try to build yourself as something completely different, sort of reinventing yourself. As I got up front close and personal with these female entrepreneurs, I would drop these little hints of, well, as you know, I have a podcast and, you know, that's, I think it's a great tool. And I noticed a trend. People were asking me a lot of questions. Well, how did you do that? How'd you get it off the ground? How'd you know what to do? So then I started what's called in the online marketing world, pre-selling. So I got a little smarter and I said, let me pre-sell a course that doesn't exist yet. And the first day that I did that, I presented and I was on a stage and I (laughs) sort of sold this idea of this course that nobody knew didn't exist yet, but it existed in my mind, but I wanted to make sure there was a demand. I sold out all my spots that day. (laughs) So then I said, okay, I have to actually go home now and build this course because people have paid me money and they expect to have this course ready by this date. So I got a little smarter. What kind of price point did you sell out your spots with? And you don't have to be specific, but just give me a range, you know, like... 10, 20, 50, 100, 500, 1,000? No, it was about a, I want to say 699 US. Uh, so it was sort of up there in the mid range. Yeah. Okay. And how long did the course last for? It's an online course. So it was eight weeks long. And there were obviously tutorials and lesson sheets and all of that. So it was a, a lifetime access for the online course. And then there was a weekly 30-minute live class with me as well, pre-scheduled, so they could show up live and we could review the material. And how many spots did you sell the first time? A dozen, and that's what I wanted. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, a big contrast. So, all of a sudden, you've got 72. Yeah, big contrast from building a course without talking to anybody first and then expecting to sell it and then trying to find a way to market it. So, I did the exact opposite. And you can see it's a different result. 
And how long did you make these people wait before you got them into the course? Um, I pre-sold three months before we were supposed to start. Oh, the course starts in three months. Do you want to buy? Exactly. Exactly. And they bought. And they bought for three months early. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's because I was, again, I did things differently. I learned from my previous mistakes or failures, as we like to call them here. And I realized, let me talk to them first. What is it that they want so that I could build something that made sense? So as I was marketing it before it existed, I was using the exact words that were coming out of their mouths every time I would talk to them about what struggles they had um, when it came to building their brand. And if they were interested in podcasting already, there was words like overwhelmed. I'm not a techie. I don't know what I'm doing. And they shared some of the same frustrations that I shared several years before when I wanted to get started in podcasting, but it just seemed overwhelming. Um, And so I was better positioned because I had been through what they were experiencing and I had come a long way from there. And I thought, well, I'm a teacher. I'm a pedagogue at heart. I can put this into a course that's sequential, that makes sense, so that you don't fall into the same traps that I did. And that's what happened. So you started the course three months out and you did it over the course of eight weeks. How long was it per day? About an hour? Two hours? Well, no, it was online. So the students would have self-paced tutorials so they could do them whenever they wanted. But the actual live portion of the course was only 30 minutes a week. So I built the course as we were going through it. So I had three months before we had to start, but I didn't build the entire course in three months because that was just. Oh, and then you each week you could sit there and finish up the next week's stuff. Correct. Yeah. I tried to be a good, you know, two to three weeks in advance, but sometimes I'll admit midnight before I'm editing a video (laughs) and uploading it. Definitely. And that's a learning curve. And those are growing pains you have to have as an entrepreneur. So, yeah. And that was the beta version of it. And now it's been through several iterations and it's just been wonderful. Do you still do it like where the course starts on a particular date or you just if somebody buys it, they get immediate access and they can go through it as quick, as fast or as slow as they want, plus the 30 minute live session once a week? Keeping with the theme of seasons, I like to do only three or four enrollment periods per year because when someone starts with me, I commit to that group for eight weeks. And so I'm there for it. And also my alumni students are always invited to come back and contribute or pick up where they left off or review Uh some sort of concept. So I go by eight week chunks. And so you'll see a fair amount of promoting probably about two months before the next enrollment period. Then I enroll and then I shut the doors to enrollment and I focus on you know, the newbies for eight weeks. I guess that also helps you be focused on what they're up to at that particular time. If they're four weeks ahead, they're four weeks ahead. But really, you're like, we're on week one right now. And this is what we're talking about right now, which makes a lot of sense. Correct. That's exactly how it's organized. So I've had students before they even finish the course launch their podcast just because they're ready and they feel that at that point they've learned enough from me and from the you know online material as well as the live classes. They're ready. You always have those go-getters in every classroom, right? <laughs> so yep. that's what happens. And then I have those that wait until the end and then they take some time to absorb and implement. And then you have others that just keep coming back because they're in the season of failure or success where they've got so much on their plate so they wait but they know that the material is ready and waiting for them and it's their decision when they launch yep that's fascinating okay i know you prepared a bunch of failure versus success stories do you have any other really 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 good ones that like really nailed down that rock bottom moment Yeah, I do have one final one that really irks me and I feel I have to admit it. So your audience is probably going to be the first to hear about it because I haven't even talked about this on my show yet. So well over two years ago, 
I started a project for women entrepreneurs. I'm a big sort of planner geek, and I really like agendas and things like that. And I love old school agendas that you have to write in. Don't get me wrong. I use my iPhone like, you know, it's the Bible, but... <laughs> paper and pencil is... Love it. I, I, I really think that paper and pencil... And, and so some people will say pen, yeah. I get that, but like... I picked up pencil a few years ago instead of pen, and really, like, paper and pencil is one of the most uh, carnal methods of creativity yeah. that exists. Like, I urge, yes. I, I don't really talk about it so much, but I would urge anybody, go get a sketchbook, go get a pencil, get a pencil sharpener, don't get the mechanical ones, and sit there and use mm-hmm. it when you, need, when you really need to get that stuff out, just use it. And then take it and transfer it to digital. Yeah, there's something visceral about that. Yeah, visceral, Carl. Yeah, I'm saying transfer it to digital. Yeah. That's fine. But when you really, really, really need to sit there and get those creative juices flowing and figure out like the solution to a problem, there's nothing quite like pencil and paper, I think. Agreed. Sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> you like to plan with writing. Yes. Exactly. So in keeping with that, I'm a big proponent of like old school agendas, like have a physical hard copy, something you love the feel of like I love sort of like a hardcover wire o binding I don't know if you know what that is but who cares it's a geeky word is that the little plastic circle things no it's not plastic it's metal it's metal metal circular binding um you find them a lot and they have the new um I don't know what you call them but like the, the discs the disc yeah the discs where, the planners where you can sit there yeah. and change pages out and in and out and in. I don't yeah know. not a fan uh, not a fan okay. not a fan <laughs> Just because I feel like it's inauthentic. <laughs> but anyway, so, I, you know, I, I was, I've been designing this planner for female entrepreneurs. I did some things right. Like I had the foresight to reserve domain names and, you know, company name and all of this and social media accounts and all of this. But once again, I got too ahead of myself and didn't realize that, you know, there's some things you should really do sequentially, like make sure you've nailed down a printer that's going to be able to give you the materials and the pricing that you want. Because my price point, the way I want to position this is in a particular way and it's for a particular audience. And so two years ago, I paid a hefty price tag for um, a graphic designer to do all of the design of the actual agenda book because I had conceived of it, but I wanted a pro to do it. Um, That cost a pretty penny, but then I couldn't get it printed the way I wanted at the price point that I wanted. And this has been my struggle for the last two years is trying to marry my image of what I want this to be with what's actually available and doable at that price point for printers, let's say North America, because I've gone through a lot of them and kind of had lots of conversations with the different printers and still not being satisfied. So it's a question of failing to, you know, realize that that's going to be a big part of your price point and your positioning and your marketing. I got all excited in the fun, sexy stuff, right? Which is designing it and getting it out. So you're saying you had this product idea, Mm -hmm. like a planner that's very specific for female entrepreneurs. Yep. You put all of the pieces together to sit there and be able to hand it off to a designer. You hand it off to a designer. The designer sat there and put it together and yep. made this amazing, amazing planner agenda thing book that that like it's ready to go to print. Correct. And for two years, you've been banging your head up against the wall and cannot find a printer that can give you the product that you want, which it sounds like you're looking for a little bit of a, of a luxury product, sort of. Somewhat. Right? Somewhat. Yep. Somewhat. somewhat. Right. Right. Meaning like not like sitting there and hitting that like $200 for a planner, but like sitting there and right. getting a nice price point for it. Yep. But you can't find the printer that can sit there and put that whole thing together. Wow. That's the mind-blowing part of it. So this poor planner that wants to see the light of day and be born has been living in, in cloud storage for almost two years. And that's the big failure. 
the poor planner can't get out because of the poor planner. Yeah. Can't get out into the world. That's right. And you know, there's so many women that need this. Yeah. <laughs> it's ironic. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. So that is the irony of all ironies is just not again. It comes, there's a recurring theme, as you can see, is getting excited about the sexy stuff, the stuff that we are good at, and then forgetting that there's a whole other aspect to the overall image and the overall picture of what you're trying to achieve. I literally like, you know, I've been thinking about it and I just realized the way to put it now, like whatever, but I, I've been thinking like, you know, I really need to find like somebody who's like much better at the administrative stuff, like, you know, the the dotting the I's and crossing the T's and whatever. And then I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm like, I should just put out an ad. Need responsible person <laughs> to oversee all the little things. <laughs> to save my butt. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I'm saying like as entrepreneurs, right, as big thinkers, as as idea people, we get the ideas all day long, but we it's really important unless you're capable of doing it yourself, which a lot of people aren't, it's really important to have those people who are really good at implementation around you, those people who are really good at the details around you, you know, they can, they can sit there and, and take care of that stuff for you. And sometimes it can be a, a challenge of money to bring the people on, right? Sometimes it could be a challenge of finding the right person, which is could potentially always be a challenge. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's all these different ways that it can be challenging to find these people. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like as a big idea person, as an entrepreneur, where you sit there and you you cover. I was listening to a fascinating interview the other day with Michael Hyatt. And he was saying that nowadays he focuses when he's doing these projects, these books, whatever it is, he focuses. He tries to do what he calls the 10-80-10. He does 10% of the planning, of the work up front with like the planning and coming up with the ideas and coming up with the concepts hands the project off to somebody else to cover the next 80% of the project, right? The nitty gritty, the research, the thought process, the this, the that, whatever, hands the whole thing off to somebody else and then comes in when the project's 90% done and does the last 10% of the polishing and stuff like that. Genius. Which I thought, I haven't yet really fully absorbed what he said to figure out if it really would work for what I'm doing and everything. But I found the concept fascinating because he's like i've got this guy he loves to research and you know i think maybe he works with the writer also maybe the researcher does the writing i don't know but whatever so he's he's like you know 10 the 80 the 10 because i mean that's we're, we're really 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 good as entrepreneurs yeah <laughs> you're so right at coming up with that big idea we're really really not so great at that 70 to 80 percent chunk in the middle i at least myself and then once the idea is like pretty close to being fleshed out, we can look at it and be like, no, no, not like this. Let's do it more like this. Not like this. Let's do it more like this. <laughs> so it's Yeah, because then you can realign with your original vision. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Realign with the original vision for sure. After the show, just because I'm, I'm not going to ask you to sit there and break down like full price points and everything. I have a lot of experience in printing. I used to do I have a failed printing enterprise that I did where I hired printers and stuff. So I do have some contacts in the industry that perhaps you have not spoken to yet and perhaps can sit there and help you out with the price points that you're looking for, the quantity, et cetera. Cool. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. And so we're going to get ready to wrap up a little bit, but I, there's two more things that I want to ask you about. Yeah. What's with the ukulele? <laughs> uh, so it's one of those things. Um, I don't know if you have something like that in your life. I'd love to know what it is. For me, originally, it was the podcast. You know, something that you you've been dying to do, but you don't give yourself permission to for one reason or another. And the ukulele for me, actually, it's it's pronounced ukulele, but <laughs> we won't be too we won't be too harsh. Thank you. <laughs> I had no idea. You're saying that the first U is an U? Yeah, it's a Hawaiian word. Ukulele. So ukulele. ukulele. 
Because I've, I've heard that word many <laughs> times and everybody yeah. pronounces it ukulele, so everybody's doing it wrong. It's like the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah. Which most people, unless you're from the, the area, say Appalachian, which yeah. my friend was explaining to me is absolutely 100% incorrect. It's not Appalachian, it's Appalachian. And I'm like, huh. Yeah. I argued so with him. Awkward. He's like, I'm from there. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Ukulele, okay. Ukulele. So, so the ukulele is just one of those cool things that I had my eye on for a long time. And I kind of have this thing, I don't know if you do this as well, where I feel like, okay, if I can bring myself to this definition of success with the project I'm working on now, my reward is that I get to indulge in some sort of new creative outlet. And so for me, in 2019, it was the ukulele. And I managed to get myself to a point where I was comfortable with the level of success that I had for a particular project that I was working on. And then it became, okay, now is the time. Bought my first ukulele and started teaching myself to play. And here I am about two months in and loving it. So it's one of those fun things where I use sort of creative outlets as rewards. And I already have my eye on what my next one will be, but I don't give myself permission to do it until, you know, the next step or the next sort of piece of the puzzle is in place. And then I'll indulge in some other creative outlet. That sounds awesome. So you had asked about stuff that I do and whatnot. So wait, let me just jump back for a second. Abraham Maslow says, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he says something along the lines of purposeful play is like the source of all creativity. So it's it's amazing that you're sitting there and focusing your energy on a way to play. Uh, so yeah. some of my issues is that I have so many interests that it's hard to sit there and pick one sometimes. And so I don't, <laughs> unfortunately. But the thing that I've been getting fascinated about most recently, even though it's very tied into my craft, is comedy and improv. Ooh, love it. And so I've been working on getting my way through different books on because, listen, as a speaker, the more humor that I can bring in, and I'm not talking about becoming a stand up comic, but the more humor that I can bring into my speeches, mm-hmm. the more relatable they can be. I'm saying, thank God I'm already, you know, I'm doing well, I'm connecting with the audiences, I'm able to put humor in, but if I can just sit there and just get to like another level of humor and whatnot, it would bring my speeches to the next level. Yeah. And so I've been reading these for a very career-centric goal, but as I'm reading them, I'm like, I want to go to an open mic night and do stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, you're having the time of your life. You know how I see stand-up comedy? It's the true art of storytelling. I have. It's funny that we have this in common. I have this massive fascination with stand-up comedy to the point where I study it. It maybe it's a little obsessive, but I just love it. And I think, as you said, to be a good speaker, you need to really learn the art of storytelling. But storytelling in a way that's entertaining and memorable. It's not just about having a good story, because you can have a really good story and relay it in a super boring way, and no one's going to remember or be interested. But if you can relay that in a way that has entertainment value and sort of spiritual value for the person that you're speaking to, whether that's one person or 100 or 1,000 in the room, that's the art of storytelling. And I feel that comedy, particularly stand-up comedy, has that, it has that extra something. And um, I've used a lot of things that I've learned in studying stand-up comedy in my own public speaking that I do. And it just, it's 10x the, I think, overall experience for me, but particularly for the audience, because you learn how to hold off on saying certain things. Don't give it all away. But then you end up coming 360, right? Like any good comedy show. There's always that relay to the first joke. (laughs) I would love to, if you don't mind, after the show, maybe send me some of your 
resources that you've done research on about stand-up comedy and whatnot. Yeah, I will. So fascinating about the ukulele. Stand-up comedy and improv are the two things that I've been most focused on. But I mean, like, you know, I've got tons of other interests and ways to try and get my purposeful play in, you know, hiking and and, uh, rock climbing and biking, which as I'm saying that, I'm realizing I haven't really done any of the three in a little bit, (laughs) which is pretty embarrassing. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, the more that we can focus on spending time with ourselves in a purposeful way and giving ourselves that time to be away from the the very difficult and the very hard things that we're working on, be it a job, be it entrepreneurship, be it family, be it any of the crazy things that we're going through. The more that we're able to show ourselves a little bit of self-love, the more we're able to cope with and, and it just opens up our ability to cope to the nth degree. It's really amazing. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Lastly, do you have like one particularly actionable item that you would recommend people go do today to bring them onto their way to greatness. Yeah. And I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head here and it perfect timing when we talk about what you call purposeful play is that it's in those moments where I'm doing something seemingly completely unrelated to the project that I'm trying to build, where I get my absolute best ideas or I get the answer to a problem I've been trying to solve forever. So if you're at a position either as an entrepreneur, fledgling entrepreneur, a solopreneur, or even a seasoned entrepreneur, and you're looking to take your business to the next level, stop whatever you're doing and go and engage in some sort of purposeful play, something that you love, or go try to learn something new, even if it's just for 15 minutes. Guaranteed, you're going to come out of there not only feeling refreshed, but something is going to strike you. You're going to have that eureka moment. And What's interesting about this phenomenon, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's experienced this, is the more regularly you do it, that effort really compounds. So example with ukulele, I started off, you know, you start off heavy when you're learning something new and you're really excited. It's like when you start a diet or an exercise regime, you're doing it every day and then it kind of tapers off, right? But (laughs) uh, with ukulele, originally I was like, okay, I really want to learn what I need to learn in a few days just to be functional. You know, I was was top heavy on learning ukulele for a few days, um, probably spending upwards of an hour, you know, learning some things. But then once I got a handle on it, I said, okay, what's a reasonable, I'll use your term, purposeful play for me to stay in that zone of creativity where it has nothing to do with necessarily what I do for a living, but that allows me to be opened up for receiving those solutions or those ideas, those eureka moments. So for me, it ended up being 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening as I'm winding down. So poor my husband and son have to hear me practicing at like six in the morning, the ukulele, (laughs) because that's my time, right? So I'll do that early in the morning and then I'll do that. That might be a really good way to wake up once you get really good. Yeah. Well, we're early risers generally. So they're already awake, but it's just, you know, you just hear me plucking away at it. But so I do that early in the morning and then in the evening. And as you do whatever your purposeful play is, it could be anything. It could be hiking. It could be riding a bike. It could be walking. It could be, I don't know, stretching, yoga. The possibilities are endless. Everyone's different. But for me, I found that over time, the being in the zone, if you will, compounds. And then I find that every time I'm playing ukulele, even if I'm concentrating on playing the notes or the chords of a song, by the end of that 15 minute session, I have an idea or an answer for something that I needed to accomplish the next step in whatever I'm working on. And it's really crazy how that works out, but it it just does. You're going to have to take my advice on it. So that one thing that I think you should be doing is finding what that purposeful play is for you, figuring out how much time you can dedicate to it where it doesn't impede other areas of your life and stick with it. They always say consistency is key. 
as much in building a business as in your personal life. And guaranteed, you're going to start feeling that creative energy and juices flowing. And it'll surprise you in the weirdest way. You'll start getting those answers that you need. What is the next thing I have to do? So just trust in the process a little bit. Definitely. This is actually, it's interesting because this is actually one of the five keys to greatness in my speech that I talk about is uh, presence, you know, being present in the present moment. And inside of that section, I actually talk about purposeful play and, and how, unfortunately, so many of us just move away from it automatically, culturally, etc. And I tell people, I say, listen, yeah. when your wife or your husband looks down at you on the floor playing with toy trucks, you look up at them very seriously <laughs> and you say, this is my creative zone. no I mean it's go ahead it's okay it's like you just said it's okay to play it's you know people are so afraid because it's not productive I don't necessarily you know I I have to apply this more to my own life also but it's okay to play it's okay to sit there and get your feet wet it's okay to sit there and enjoy yourself every once in a while because if you're not doing that you're not unlocking the true power of your creativity you're not unlocking the true power of your ability to find creative solutions to the problems that you're facing in life it's just not going to happen exactly Mm-hmm. absolutely well said awesome this has been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show thank you it's been a great pleasure all right thanks ciao for now Hey guys, this is Ari Gunsberg, your host. Unfortunately, at the end of the interview, I forgot to ask Lisa how to get in touch with her, so I just wanted to drop a quick little note and tell you guys how to do that. You can find Lisa on her website, lisacapri.com, L-I-S-A-C-A-P-R-I.com. And if you're looking for her podcasting course, the one that teaches you how to podcast yourself, that's lisacapri.com, L-I-S-A-C-A-P-R-I.com, forward slash unlock. Again, thanks so much for coming on the show, Lisa. I'm really sorry that I forgot to ask you right at the end of the show how people can get in touch with you. So for anybody who's listening and they want to get in touch with Lisa, please go to her website. It's L-I-S-A-C-A-P-R-I dot com, and it will be linked to in the show notes. Also, you can go to her page specifically for her podcast course if you're interested in that, which is lisacapri.com forward slash unlock. On October 7th, 2019, FunXNL wrote, Great show. Great info. Thanks, Ari. Keep up the great work. Do you want to get your review featured on the show? I'd love to read your review on the podcast as quickly as possible. Jump onto Apple Podcasts. Leave us that review. Tell us what you think. Write down your thoughts, and we will get you up on the show. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you get every episode as it comes out direct to your phone or your favorite podcast app thank you for listening to the way to greatness podcast where we explore the journey from failure and mediocrity to success and greatness keep moving on your way to greatness join us next week for more stories inspirations and interviews to help you achieve the greatness within you.